Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world. The headline-making science news that warrants a step back and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the Weekly Sideshow, where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm Sam Marchetti. And I'm Thanushara Rajendran. And today, we're going to get up to date on everything from bacteria to the Ukraine in another discussion on the sidelines. Okay, Tanish, what did you find this week? Okay, so first up, bacterias, but not just any bacterias, engineered bacterias by this group of scientists in Northwestern University and Lanza Tech. So basically, what they did was that they started off with this engineered bacteria called C. autoethanogenum. And the purpose of this is that they wanted to create bacteria that can like ferment things or ferment processes. Okay. Like alcohol. Exactly. So the end goal was to ferment or more so convert carbon dioxide in the atmosphere into chemicals that we use in our daily lives, like acetone and isopropanol. Okay. So basically, what their plan was to create this bacteria that was not just beneficial in terms of like removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Another thing is that these chemicals in like a conventional way, you would need so much fossil fuels like to actually produce them. So you're taking the greenhouse gases in the air and then you're converting it into acetone or isopropanol. Otherwise you would need fossil fuel and burn it to create these chemicals. Interesting. So we're using, we're eliminating climate change at the same time as we're creating stuff that we need. Exactly. And like in, well, currently in this day and age, when you combine the industry for both these chemicals alone, globally, it makes up $10 billion like annually. So that means this is an alternative as well as like a better option than the conventional manner, because not only is it like beneficial, like profit wise, but also for the climate, as well as it can reduce like greenhouse emissions by like 160 percent. Did you say 160 percent? Yes. When it, if like it's widely used, it can like reduce carbon emissions by 160 percent. In the process, you mean? Like in the process of making these materials that we need. Yes. Okay. Okay. And at first, I thought you meant just overall. Like if we do this, oh, that we will. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yes. But so when you say it reduces it by one hundred and sixty percent, you mean it not only does it completely eliminate the the emissions from making these things, but it actually removes more carbon in the process. So we've gone exactly. past the hundred percent. Yep. Cool. So you're removing atmospheric greenhouse and carbon dioxide. That's bad. Wow. But yeah, they recently published this paper on Nature Biotech, a popular like journal, very peer reviewed and renowned about like, I think, February 21st. So like a few days ago, actually. Now, to really emphasize why like these two chemicals in particular are like fundamental is because like we don't really think about it, but we use isopropanol almost in our everyday lives now because of like disinfectants. It's like a huge component in disinfectants and almost everyone is using them. So we made a lot of it in the last couple of years. 
Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it works against the virus and the pandemic, but also we need to, like, look for other sources. So while we've been trying to protect ourselves from COVID, we've also just been pumping a ton of greenhouse gas into the uh, into the atmosphere. Yes. And for like acetone, like in industry, they kind of use it as a solvent for like fibers and plastics. But you kind of also use it like places you don't really think of, like nail polish removers. Oh, I mean, OK, so I now that you've given me that context, I know what acetone smells like. But other than that, <laughs> I can't say I've ever I've ever used it. I mean, I personally don't use nail polish remover, but I know my my mom and my sister do sometimes. And you can smell that stuff. Oh, yeah. It's like it just strips the nail polish off. But they do use like a stronger grade in industry as well to like dissolve certain materials but yeah that's like the first story using bacteria to recycle carbon waste into actually valuable chemicals interesting um and you know there might actually be a good reason to start doing that on a on a larger level a lot sooner than we thought um one of the things i saw this week you know how when people talk about climate change usually they say at least our generation is kind of screwed because yeah. no matter when we stop uh, emitting like greenhouse gases, the planet's probably going to keep warming for another like 30 or 40 years, right? Yeah, it's like a point of no return almost. Yeah. So turns out that was wrong. Okay. Yeah, right. Very, very bold statement to make. But this was the first thing I read this week. Um, it, it, basically, the way that we initially thought about climate change, and this is like a great example of this is a great example of how science is a process and we're always making progress in it um so science isn't necessarily lying to you we're just learning more um as we go along yeah it's just your hypothesis changes and like you have more evidence so it's more informed exactly so we've we have a lot more evidence now than we did when we started uh looking at climate change you know a few decades ago and what they kind of thought a few decades ago when they were modeling temperature increases was basically just modeling the lag between, okay, if we pump carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into a chamber and we point light at it, how long is it going to take to warm up after we pump in the greenhouse gases? And that lag on a global scale was about 30 to 40 years. So we, you know, there's a bit of a lag between putting the gas in and then actually seeing the planet stop warming up. Um, but what they've kind of realized now is that those models are super simple. The way that we thought climate change worked um, or the way that we thought warming on a global scale worked was basically, you know, the greenhouse effect. And that's it. So for anybody that doesn't know the way that uh, greenhouse gases affect our atmosphere is that sunlight comes in, hits the planet, and then the planet warms up and emits uh, infrared radiation back towards the atmosphere. What carbon dioxide does is absorb a lot of that infrared and then just scatter it in different directions. So, you know, a small, you know, a small proportion of that, um, I don't know the actual number, I think it's like 30% or something goes out to space of that heat, that infrared energy. And then the rest just kind of gets scattered around the atmosphere and then back towards the earth. Um, so that's how we thought things warmed up. And that's what we based it all on. What we didn't have in our models before was an understanding of, you know, carbon sinks and other things that are taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So things like forests. Um, and based on these new things that scientists have put into their models, they think that uh, that time lag between when we stop emitting greenhouse gases and when we see the planet stop warming is actually only about three to five years. 
That is really good news to hear, especially like this, like recently too. Just knowing that we can actually do something about climate change. Yeah, so we're definitely not screwed in our lifetimes, um, assuming we actually do something. Because now I feel like I feel like there is a bit of a danger that politicians will hear this and say, "Oh, so we have more time than we thought to to stop emitting. We have even more. We can just keep emitting for a while and let catastrophe happen, and then stop emitting." And you said like those things are like forests and like we do have a forestation problem as well. So, yeah, yeah. Huge deforestation problem. We've lost like massive proportions of uh, the global forests in the last uh, number of decades. So we kind of like have to push for like protecting them as like actual things. Are these yeah. like the only natural things for carbon atmospheric like carbon? Oh, dioxide? no, not at all. So we don't just have the forests. We also have the oceans are also a big one that absorb uh, carbon dioxide. Um, and specific, specifically phytoplankton and other photosynthetic um, algae, things like that. Um, so there are a lot of other carbon sinks in the world, but we do need to fight to protect them to keep that three to five years at three to five years because we don't want that to go. We don't want the lag to go up, obviously. Um, but it is it is kind of encouraging. And, you know, maybe it'll spur people to actually do more now. Right. Because now we can say, ah, well, if we take action, we'll actually see a result in three to five years. We will see the temperature stop going up in three to five years it's like very much like a burst of hope i'm very much enjoying this piece of information <laughs> right it's great the one thing that is i should warn not warn but there's a bit of a caveat to this the planet is currently warm we are at a warm temperature we are you know uh 1.5 uh degrees above whatever or we're sorry we're not 1.5 we're like 0 0.7 1.5 is the goal um we're we are warmer than we should be even if we stopped emitting right now, the ice in the, in the Arctic and Antarctic, would, they would still keep melting, right? Having said that, if we let the planet keep warming, that's going to happen a lot faster. So we can buy ourselves a lot of time if we stop emitting now and a lot more time than we thought to figure out how to deal with those problems and how to, you know, uh, adapt to the consequences of the fact that the Arctic and the Antarctic um, will, you know, melt at some point. No, it's all about making time and during that time to actually do something about it yeah exactly yeah so hearing about climate change and like change in general let me tell you something about sudden evolutionary changes in flowers so when you're talking about evolutionary changes in flower just imagine when you think of evolution it's like this very slow pace where things change one mutation at a time and you don't really see anything for like generations and generations right but what if I tell you, like, it can also be a drastic jump in a very short burst of time? Okay. Okay. So basically, there was a group of ecologists in UC Santa Barbara who were studying these species of flowers called Colorado Blue Columbine. And these flowers, they're purple and white in color, and they're really pretty, and they have a very distinctive feature. They have spurs below, like, their sepal and paddle spurs is basically an organ of a flower, a part of like where the petals are. And they started noticing that the proportion of flowers without petals and those spurs were increasing in like numbers in their population. And they wanted to know why. Was it like just one mutation or what, what in the world was actually happening? So they decided to study the genome of this flower. And they found that there was 
mutations in just a single gene, Epitola 3-3, is responsible for the development of certain organs in the flower. So basically, we have our own developmentary genes that are responsible for like brain development and heart development. So in flowers, there are these genes that are responsible for like the leaves to spawn and to develop as well as the petals and so forth. And what they found was that it, the mutation deactivated the gene. So it lost its di distinctive feature, the spur. So now whatever flower that came from that do not have that distinctive feature of how they would usually categorize these species of flower, the Colorado blue columbine. And they wanted to know further because like you don't really see this drastic of a change and it actually thriving in nature. Okay, so very weird observation of evolution. So what they found between these two flowers, at first they found that the flowers without the spurs, the mutated flowers, were producing more seeds. But that alone isn't going to like do much. Like They still have the same pollinators and like same like predators. In other and words, found... it's not going to help them have more uh, offspring. Exactly, so. yeah. And what they found was that deers preferred eating the flowers with the spur. So the flowers without the spurs became an evolutionary advantage to the species. So they're surviving. They're the survivors. Yes. They're the huh. survivors. So the original species that had the spur are like starting to decrease because of these uh, deers in the environment that keep on eating them because they are avoiding the spurless flowers. Reminds me of every zombie apocalypse movie ever, where there's like one immune person, and then eventually everyone's just immune because they're the only ones that survive and they have offspring, right? Pretty much. This is like, this is really cool because they're seeing natural selection like happen in real time, like and an evolutionary change actually being advantageous and it actually being fast because it went from having it to not having it. There wasn't like any intermediate structure or yeah. like any like in between. It was there was yeah. and then there wasn't. And usually it's like impossible to observe this kind of thing on a short time scale unless you're looking at um, bacteria or something. Exactly. And like if they were to find these samples like millions of years ago in like fossil records, they wouldn't even identify them as like being the same species or like even in the same genre of like flowers because they're just so different based on that exactly. organ loss. yeah that's incredible yeah no that's definitely cool and talking about new research and new discoveries let's talk about nasa's new telescope james webb space telescope was launched back in december of 2021 so this is kind of like what people thought to be the successor for the hubble telescope hubble space telescope so once it was launched, it's been about a month and a half to like closer to two months now. So it's basically at the position it needs to be. And it's like aligning all its primary mirrors as well as like taking images and so forth. So what and is the I position? Where's the position that it needs to be? So it is a one million miles away from Earth as of last month. One million. So I, I Googled it so we have something to go off of. Um, so the Earth to the moon is about 384,000 kilometers, and the Earth to Mars is about 301 million kilometers. So somewhere between the moon and Mars, 
closer to us than to Mars, though. Um, but I, I guess it had to get pretty far away from Earth to be able to see these other things so far away. Yeah, and it's also, like, one of the biggest, like, infrared observatories to exist and costs, like, $10 billion. So there's, like, high expectations and, like, a lot of mission goals. So it's, like, primary goal, basically, is to, like, seek out light of, like, the very first stars and galaxies to ever form about, like, 14 billion years ago. And do you want to take a guess into, like, its secondary objective almost? Besides, like, seeing lights and stars and galaxies? Um, it's really cool. It's something I like. To find alien life. Kind of. So it's basically... Oh, yeah. Examine atmospheres of alien worlds from any po for any possible signs of life. Cool. Okay, so it actually is looking for aliens. Yeah, or like, yeah, basically any form of light. And that's like very cool to take about. And this is kind of like the biggest telescope that's working on it. Because like the next NASA telescope they predict won't be out till like 2027 or won't be launched till then. Hmm. So why this was in media currently was because it's NASA recently released pictures of a selfie that this telescope took. And... How does it back up? How does it take a selfie? The lens is part. The telescope is pointed away. That's how a telescope lens works. How does it take a selfie? Okay, so how the telescope is like built is basically that it has eighteen different segments of primary mirrors at the front of it, and it has a camera attached to the back. So basically, took a picture of basically an infrared camera took a picture of the telescope as it was snapping a picture from one of the mirror segments gazing into the star. So it's like a picture of the mirror, not precisely like a full front picture. Okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. Oh, that's kind of cool. 18 mirrors? Yes, and they also released like this mosaic of light pictures that were reflected on these mirrors. Wow. So those are like the first few pictures that NASA released from this telescope, and there's so many high hopes surrounding it. They have they claim that in like a month's time from now, or like half a month's time from them, they can fully say that all the mirrors are functioning properly. So right now it's basically set up, testing, and those kind of things, but very promising and very exciting. That is super exciting. I'm so excited for this thing to find aliens. Yeah, that's why I know we've, we've talked about aliens a couple times. Again, I really hope they're not aliens that eat the sun for anyone that listened to one of our earlier episodes. We went over this. Yeah, yeah. But I do hope it finds aliens because that's <laughs> that, that would be pretty cool. And there's there are definitely aliens out there. So, you know, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool stuff. OK, we we should talk about Ukraine. Um, yes. Awful subject. Um, and obviously what's going on there is a tragedy. But from a scientific point of view, it's also fairly terrifying. Um, how, do you have any idea why? Was it something to do with Chernobyl, the nuclear site? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. The Russian um, invaders, they've occupied the area around Chernobyl. Um, and obviously the way you occupy an area is by firing lots of rockets and heavy machinery at it. Um, and uh, the kind of mainstream media story right now is, Oh, well, what if they damage Chernobyl and the radiation starts to leak out towards 
um, you know, Kiev or other major cities in Ukraine. But uh, James Acton, who's a PhD in theoretical physics, and he's uh, one of the heads of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, um, his kind of thinking is that we need to be a little bit more concerned about the other nuclear sites that are active in uh, Ukraine. There's more? I, I didn't know. I just thought Chernobyl was like the only one. Yeah, so there actually are other uh, nuclear sites in Ukraine, much like any other country, right? Most countries have a few nuclear power plants in them. Nuclear energy yeah. is a great source of energy. At this point, we have figured out most of the kinks. Obviously, Chernobyl was um, the case where we did not understand how it worked yet. It was yet, definitely and... a tragedy, yeah. Right. Um, but there are actually currently um, 15 reactors in Ukraine, and they produce half of Ukraine's energy. That is so much. Yeah, it's a lot. So there is um, there is some concern right now that one of these strikes um, and these attacks could hit uh, one of these active power plants. So there have been a few strikes within, you know, uh, you know under 100 kilometers of one of these nuclear reactors. Yeah, because it's not just firearms. They're also using bombs in yeah. these locations. Yeah, exactly. So especially things like airstrikes, right? Um, and if the invading, uh, if the Russian invaders decide that they think, um, you know, Ukrainian uh, troops could be holed up in one of these nuclear sites, they might decide to target it anyway. So that's a huge thing um, that Dr. Acton believes we should be concerned about. Oh, that's such a terrible action. Like, honestly, I think one of the more terrifying elements of like war in general in this day and age is like nuclear. Absolutely. Absolutely. And usually people think about it in the context of firing nuclear weapons. But in this case, it would be the accidental, you know, weaponization of a nuclear plant instead of like a nuclear missile. Right. Yeah. Um, because if you hit an active nuclear plant and there's a meltdown, that radiation can spread very far um, like yeah. that. That kind of radiation could reach as far as, you know, uh, Eastern, sorry, Western Europe. Is what I meant to say. Um, no, yeah, definitely. And there's like so many papers published about like Chernobyl and like the effects it had on not just the environment, the people and their health surrounding it. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing, Ukraine produces a lot of resources that the rest of the world use. Um, do you know what elements Ukraine produces, like what critical earth elements they produce? Like rare earth elements. No, I haven't done chemistry in a very long time. You're testing me here, Sam. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna take like an easy guess and be like silver. You're actually pretty close. Um, okay. Are you? I don't know my periodic table either. Neon. <laughs> neon is the one. Um, so, do you know what neon's used in? Fancy lights. Right. Fancy lights. And you would think, oh, well, you know, we'll be okay without some fancy lights. We don't need the fancy Vegas lighting. Mm -hmm. But neon is also used in lasers. Lasers is a very specific form of fancy light. And we use lasers to make microchips. Um, so right now, Ukraine actually produces 90% of uh, U.S. semiconductor grade neon. Um, so that's the lasers that we use to make microchips. And this is another hit on an industry that's already taken a hit. I don't know if you're aware of what happened in the last couple of years, but basically when uh, the entire world went into lockdown and we didn't have enough silicon, we did not have nearly enough silicon to keep up with the demand of every single person on the planet suddenly wanting to work from home and buying a computer. Silicon is a major component of these computer chips. 
So because of that increased demand, we actually like we've gone through, you know, the silicon supply that we've had for the next couple of years. And it's going to take them years just to catch up on the silicon supply. And now on top of that, so we, it's not just that we don't have the material to make these computer chips, which are, by the way, in your phone, in your car, um, even in your probably in your furnace. Right. There's motherboards now in your fridge. These things have computers in them. So not only do we not have the materials, we don't have the materials or we might may not have the materials to make the things in the first place, just for the process of making them. Um, if you ever heard of Intel, who makes a lot of computer chips, your computer probably has something on the front. If you own a PC that says Intel, i5, i7, whatever, they get almost half their neon from Eastern Europe. Oh, my God. I feel like everyone I know has like an Intel like computer logo on it. Right. That is just I, insane to think about. It's a big deal. It's a big deal that we may be um, you know, we may be looking at another another slowdown in how quickly we can produce computer chips in a world that's so dependent on computer chips. Yeah. Like I can't imagine a day without having like any form of technology and every piece of equipment that we have mostly like has these elements that are needed to make it like your phone your computer basically and like like you said like our appliances these days are all like smart appliances so basically like your entire day is just shut down yeah yeah even things like our microphones that we're using for this podcast without neon and silicon <laughs> we don't have a podcast oh my god i are they looking into now this is like an off lightly off topic question but are they looking into like alternatives for like silicon since we did have a shortage and like what would they do with like the neon shortage honestly at this point it's still just a waiting game and it's just it's going to take them a few years to catch up on the shortages um for silicon at the moment and right now we're still hoping that the the slowdown in neon supply isn't going to be too too bad it's just going to make things more expensive too, like inflation and all. Yeah, doesn't everything. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining me, Tanish. And thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about evolution, neon, or any of the other topics we've talked about on this show, Visit us on Instagram or TikTok at SciForEveryone and on our website at scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Taneshwari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant.